if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm your host, Neil White, joined as always by my brother, David. David, how's it going? I'm doing pretty well, Neil. How about you? I am good, and we are back to doing full-length episodes. Uh, We did a mini episode for our last episode, so if you're interested in something a little bit shorter, you can go back and listen to that episode. But this is back to just a normal Oh Brother, When Art Thou episode, which means that I have to ask the question I always ask to start the podcast. Oh Brother, When Art Thou? Neil, it's March 30th, 1918. And at Morai, France, a squadron of cavalry is beginning a classic charge, sabers drawn, horses galloping across the open plain straight towards the German trench line. The machine guns open in fire. The men begin to drop. And as every soldier knows, speed is their only defense. So the tension is rising. David, a lot of people might be surprised to hear of a cavalry charge in 1918. Was this a common tactic? No, this is for the British army at least, or the Canadian army, since we're talking about a Canadian action today, a tactic that is almost four years obsolete. After the opening clashes in 1914, after the trenches get built at the start of World War I, the fact was that even the most hidebound and conservative cavalry general could see that there was simply no way you could charge a cavalry unit through a trench line. They would clearly just be shot down. So really, only a madman would think, yeah, I'm just going to charge a cavalry squadron straight at an enemy trench. That's crazy, crazy talk. And yet here we are in 1918 with crazy talk, a cavalry charge by the Canadians straight across no man's land into the teeth of German machine guns. That that's where we are, yes. So is this being led by a madman? I mean, you could make the argument, but there are some good reasons why Lieutenant Gordon Flowerdew has decided to take this extreme risk. Of course, David, the Canadians are led by a gourd. Of course they are. But there are good reasons why he's chosen to take this extreme risk, because this is a moment where, for the entire Allied cause, pressure is on, tensions are high, and many people feel that this month, March 1918, is going to be a turning point in World War I, one way or another. So maybe we should talk about the strategic situation before we move in to this specific action. Okay, so what is the situation in March 1918, David? We're getting towards the end of World War I. We've been fighting for a few years now. Bring us up to speed. So... Two major factors are affecting the strategic situation for both sides 
at the end of 1917 and therefore here at the start of 1918. The two big events are the Russian Revolution, which has made the largest allied power in terms of manpower exit the war. The Russians are no longer fighting the Germans. And that, of course, is great news for Germany. And the second factor is the entry of the United States into the war after well-known extreme provocations like the sinking of the Lusitania and the Zimmerman telegram. President Woodrow Wilson has become fed up with the Germans, and he is joining the war on the Allied side. So the Allies have lost Russia, but gained America. Exactly. And for the Germans, this has created a very narrow window of opportunity. They suffered tremendous losses fighting the Russians before the Russians left the war. And once the Americans army is available in full strength, it doesn't look even to the most optimistic German general, like they'll be able to prevent the allies from breaking out. But the American army can't teleport, it can't just appear in the fields of France. And in fact, the American army is going to need to expand on a massive basis, train hundreds of thousands of men. And everyone knows that'll take time probably at least six months, maybe a year or more. And that means at the start of 1918, the Allies have lost one of their largest allies and their new biggest power hasn't yet arrived. So for the German commander, General Ludendorff, this is the moment where he has to knock Britain and France out of the war very quickly or else the Americans will be able to arrive and the German position will be untenable. And therefore, he's planning just one last desperate gamble, one major offensive designed to break through the British and French lines and rush for Paris because that's the only way he can see a big victory being a real possibility. All right, so the Germans are going all in before the Americans can get here. This is their last chance to win. What does that look like on the ground, David? And how does that lead us to March 30th, 1918? So the Germans have had four years to try and learn what tactics will work best to break this stalemate, this trench warfare that everyone has wanted to break since 1914. Now they've been on the defensive more while the allies have been attacking more often. But even so, the Germans have had a great opportunity to see what works and what doesn't. And because they were more on the defensive, more opportunities to retrain, form new units for new special assaulting tactics. They're usually referred to in English as infiltration tactics. And the new units that the Germans have created to execute them are called Stastruppen sometimes translated into English as shock troopers, but you'll know them better by their more common English translation of storm troopers. At least those of us who like Star Wars do. And so these new stormtrooper units are going to fight a different battle than how traditionally officers have thought of war. They're not marching in lines. They're small, 
units that operate independently on the battlefield, finding the weakest points in the enemy line, slipping through, not trying to wipe out the enemy where they're strongest, but instead to infiltrate past the enemy's strong points, surround them, and then leave the destruction of any strong enemy unit to follow up troops while they just advance relentlessly, quickly. And then once they get behind the lines, they're going to cut communications, they're going to block roads, and thereby collapse the Allied defense. This is the essence of the new German tactics, and it is very effective. All right, David, I'm sure the question everyone is wondering, though, is are they better shots than the stormtroopers in Star Wars? Well, they are elite troops, very well trained with a ton of experience. On the other hand, they're not all about long range fire. That is an old 1914 mentality that you're holding on to. The stormtroops use new weapons like submachine guns and flamethrowers that are designed to let them put a lot of bullets or fire into the air to cover an area. They don't necessarily need to hit with every shot if they can put a lot of shots where they need them to go. And they couldn't possibly be worse than the blaster shooters in the Star Wars universe. Okay, that's my last mention of Star Wars. David, is this bad news for the Allies? Are they going to be able to hold out until the Americans get there? It is disastrous news for the Allies. These new modern tactics are very effective. And in the opening battles of the German Spring Offensive, the German Operation Michael, as they refer to it, punches a hole through the British lines and through other Allied units, they find again the weak points. That's all what the new German strategy is all about, targeting divisions from India and Portugal that don't have the same training and equipment as British or French units. And once they've got their holes, they start advancing. And by World War I standards, this advance is very rapid and it's overwhelming the British and terrifying them. So David, what are the British going to do? How do they hold on and stay alive long enough for the Americans to enter the war and bring the might of the American military and the American industrial world to World War I? So these infiltration tactics are devastating and they will be an inspiration for many future military tactics, but they have a crucial weak point. As they get these small units past the allied strong points, which end up isolated, the Germans have no ability to resupply these units or support them or reinforce them. So these units are just as cut off as the British units that they've been encircling. And the British high command actually sees an opportunity here. If they can just get more troops to the front and counterattack, they can eliminate a lot of the Germans' best trained troops alone, isolated, in small groups, pushing their way back to the old front line. All right, David, so is this sort of like in football, bear with me on this analogy, but in football, you use a trap play or screen play where you actually let the other team come past your blockers. They think they're unblocked and going to be able to get to the quarterback. And then he throws a short pass 
uh, to an open receiver who's now downfield because he's actually passed these guys that you purposefully let through. Yes, but it's a very accidental one. This is not something that the British High Command were planning all along would happen. This is an opportunity that's developing as the situation occurs. And that means that their British High Command also knows that there's very real risk that if they can't execute this counterattack quickly, they could just collapse, even with all the weaknesses that the Germans have right now. If the British can't find troops to take advantage of it, then the Germans will just keep coming, keep moving. So they need to find extra units that they can use for this counterattack. And where, David, are the British going to find extra units? Isn't everybody already engaged in World War I? Well, the British start looking everywhere. They try and take units away from the Canadian Corps, which the general in command, Arthur Curry, quite rightly says, no, this is one unit. If you want to use the Corps, you can use the Corps, but you don't split us up. And they look at the Australians and everything they can to try and get some manpower that's not in the line. And one of the major places they do find some spare manpower is in the cavalry units. They have large cavalry units dating back frequently to 1914 that they've held on to because they were never confident enough that the trenches would remain for the entire war, that they were willing to be entirely without cavalry, which most of the generals were used to thinking of as a vital branch of the army. And those units have not been engaged as heavily. So now they're pushing the cavalry usually dismounted and fighting as infantry into this counterattack to try and stabilize the line. Right. So the cavalry units haven't been useful in this new type of warfare, but that means they have all these extra cavalry units around who haven't been being used. Does this bring us to March 30th, David? It does, because one of those cavalry units that was more or less sitting around was the Canadian Cavalry Brigade, which had been removed from the Canadian Corps to be with the larger British cavalry units and actually put under the command of Colonel Jack Selby, who's a British guy with a crazy history. He was the equivalent of their Minister for Defense, and then he got fired in 1914 after a parliamentary scandal, and then getting command of the Canadian Cavalry Brigade was his plan to get back into prominence, and then he ends up stuck as a nobody for four years because the cavalry turns out not to be useful. But that's not really important. What's important is the cavalry brigade is available and immediately, like every other unit they can get their hands on, the British are rushing to use it to plug the holes that the German offensive has created. All right, David. So it's time to send in the cavalry quite literally the British are sending cavalry units up to the front to try and reinforce, fill in these holes, and entrap the stormtroopers and use it as a way to eliminate the Germans' best attackers. So what is the situation that Lieutenant Gordon Flowerdew and this Canadian cavalry unit find themselves in on March 30th? So by March 30th, they've already been fighting for weeks, advancing usually as infantry, with the support of a Canadian armored car squadron, 
Interestingly enough, the only armored car squadron available to be rushed in again as a unit to save the day here was a Canadian one because all of the British ones had been sent to the Middle East to support the British forces there in more mobile warfare where armored cars were more useful. But the Canadian unit had been held back to be with the Canadian forces and therefore was available for this. But anyway, they've been fighting for weeks and their initial fighting was very successful for all the reasons I said. The German units that they encountered were small, split up, cut off from resupply. Many of them were running out of ammunition by the time the Canadians reached them and they've been pushing them back, but it's never been enough. There just ha aren't enough of these cavalry units available to execute the kind of attack that the British high command really wants. So they've been trying to move faster by using their horses to as mobility for moving from place to place and fight to fight. And that's how Lieutenant Gordon Flowerdew found himself at Morai encountering an unexpected German unit while his squadron was still on horseback. And even worse, this German unit had taken the time to actually dig itself defensive fighting positions, a trench line, and emplace its machine guns. So unlike the other small scattered units that they've been wiping out up until this point, this is a real defensive line that he needs to respond to right away. And his response, David, is to charge? Almost. His response is to split his company in two. One squadron will fall back, dismount, and go for the enemy's flank, work in his infantry, the classic thing. But he sees that they need cover, that if he tries to do this with his full squadron, they'll be under German machine gun fire for too long while they try and dismount, get rid of their horses, go for a flank, all the things you're supposed to do. So with his personal squadron, he decides to charge straight at the German lines to try and just ride over them if possible and if not, at least to cover the period of time that his other squadron will need to dismount and get into action as infantry. David, on a scale of zero to light brigade, how doomed is this charge? Pretty much all the way at light brigade. It's not 100%, but three quarters of the troops who charge with Gordon Flowerdew in his squadron charging the Germans at Morai Wood will be shot down by German machine gun fire, killed or wounded. Practically all of the horses of the squadron die. They're easier targets because they're bigger, but their attack has one effect that the light brigade did not because the second squadron, the one that was dismounting, is ignored by the Germans in favor of this more immediate threat of the charging horses. And by the time the Germans have gotten back to paying attention to the second squadron, it's done everything right. Dismounted, gotten out its rifles, acted like infantry, cleared a flank, seized the German machine guns, and this German unit, like many others, will be forced to surrender or be destroyed. And the Canadian counterattack will continue. So, David, a doomed charge but they did what they needed to do to give 
the other soldiers a chance at, and the time that they needed to attack the flank and actually win the battle. That's right. And David, what of Lieutenant Gordon Flowerdew? Does he make it through the charge? Lieutenant Flowerdew is hit during the charge, wounded. He survives long enough to see that the charge has been successful in covering his second squadron and to order one of his fellow lieutenants to take command of the survivors and continue the advance. He dies the next day and he is later awarded the Victoria Cross posthumously for his part in this action. So David, a brave and stunning charge by the Canadians to do just enough to get their guys through to win the battle. Thanks for telling us this story made all the more special as we remember it on Remembrance Day. I always enjoy sharing stories like this of valor, of sacrifice, and that are important to us as Canadians. Certainly worth remembering, David, and important to remember on November 11th, Remembrance Day. Also, we'll mention that if you're wondering about our references to the Charge of the Light Brigade, we do have an episode about that, so you can go back and find out what that was all about. Episode 36, The Battle and the Poem. David, we always like to end with a quiz. So today, I thought, since we are just coming off the end of the American election, we should have a quiz all about elections. Are you ready? All right. I've been fascinated by the American election these past few days, so maybe I'm ready or maybe I'm not. We'll find out. I think much of the world has been fascinated by this American election. It has been long, if nothing else, and probably pretty fascinating to most people. David, first question for you. Going back to the first democracy in ancient Greece, were women allowed to vote? Were women allowed to vote in ancient Greek elections in places like Athens? Well, I know that those societies were deeply sexist and unequal ones. So although I'm not actually sure of the answer, I'm going to say no. You are correct, David. Women were not allowed to vote in those very first recorded elections in history, something that has remained a struggle right through to this century. Interesting, in the American election, Kamala Harris becomes the first female vice president elected. Moving forward in time a bit for our next question, in Britain in 1780, what percentage of the population could vote? Oh, and you have choices for this one. Less than 10%, 10 to 33%, 33 to 50%, or more than 50%. So I know that British elections of that time period were very uh, restricted in terms of who was allowed to vote. So I don't want to guess too high but less than 10% seems very, very low to me. So I'm going to guess 10 to 33%. David, you will be surprised to hear it was in fact less than 10%. Just 214,000 out of a population of about 8 million people could vote. So that's about 3% of the total population who are eligible to vote in Britain in the 1780s. David, when we look at the 20th century, in what decade did the world add the most 
new democracies. What decade had the most new democracies in the 20th century? I don't know the answer, but if I had to guess, I would think that the period around the Second World War certainly saw a lot of upheaval and change in uh, what countries and how they were governed. So I might guess the 1940s. A good guess, David, and that is one of the decades that was up there, but it's actually the 1990s towards the end of the century, as you saw the breakup of the USSR, plus democratization in some third world countries that brought about a lot of new democracies in the 1990s. That's according to the Varieties of Democracy Project. Next question, David, we're going to go American elections for our last two questions, since that is what inspired this quiz. So going back to 1984, David, Ronald Reagan won every single U.S. state except which Midwestern state? I have no idea. I'll give you a hint, David. This state was the home state of his opponent, Walter Mondale. If I knew where Mo Walter Mondale was from, that would be a very helpful hint. Very I'm much going so. to guess Ohio. Good guess, David. It was actually Minnesota, Walter Mondale's home state, narrowly voted for Walter Mondale. Reagan also lost the District of Columbia. Final question for you, David. This US election 2020, which state was the closest? Which state was the closest in 2020? If I have been following the results in several swing states, all of which have been very close, I'm actually not sure which one was the closest between Nevada, Michigan, Pennsylvania. I'm going to guess, though, that Georgia, their margin was very razor thin. So I think they might be the closest. You're right, David. Georgia, where Biden is projected to win by just 0.2 percentage points, is standing up as the closest state in this most recent U.S. election. Thanks for playing along, David. I always enjoy it, Neil. And thanks for listening. <laughs>